You're listening to the Entmoot Podcast, the podcast about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and how they intersect with political philosophy. This is episode one, The Professor, in which co-hosts Kenny and Sam discuss broadly the life and work of J.R.R. Tolkien. Welcome, listeners, to episode one of the Entmoot podcast. I am Kenny Tallarico, one of your co-hosts, and I'm here with Sam Lieberman. Sam, how are you? I'm doing quite well today. It's been a been a thrilling weekend. I'm glad to hear that. So, as you know from the podcast description, this is a podcast where we talk about the intersection of all things J.R.R. Tolkien and political philosophy, ethics, religion etc. So we thought we would give some background on who we are. Sam, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So I am a rising senior at Hamilton College, which is a uh, small liberal arts college in upstate New York. Shocker for the demographics of people who would be making a podcast like this. Um, I study public policy and religious studies. And I, you know, would consider myself on the political left, uh, somewhere in the, you know, nebulous uh, zone between, I don't know, I, I guess I'd call myself a democratic socialist, but you could also say classical social democrat or anything of that capacity. I first got interested in Tolkien because my dad uh, is a big Tolkien fan, not, not to the extent that, that me and Kenny are, but he's, he, he loves Lord of the Rings, and when I was a kid... I was probably like eight. Uh, he read me out loud to, to me and my sister, The Hobbit. And then when I was probably nine or ten, he read out loud The Fellowship of the Ring. And my sister was not a fan, so he did not read out the rest of the books aloud to us. But I just read them on my own. And then as I got a little older, I watched the movies, reread the books. And then when I was probably a freshman in high school, I attempted reading the, the some of the other Tolkien works set in the Lord of the Rings universe, which we'll cover later, such as the Silmarillion. I was unsuccessful in this effort and only actually properly read uh, all the deeper lore really in the last year. And then I just got even more obsessed than I've ever been. So I guess that's my background as to who I am and how I got into Tolkien. Yeah, so I can... Uh do myself here. We, uh, Sam and I actually met at, in college, which, uh, is probably expected. Uh, I, uh, I was a year above him at Hamilton. I graduated a few months ago. Uh, I was a computer science major, but I took a bunch of classes in government and history. Those were my, my minors. Um, like Sam, I, I characterize myself as being on, the the political left, uh, I usually say uh, social democrat or something like that if I'm going to uh, describe myself in a few words. And then for myself, my own interest in, in Tolkien is actually, it comes about quite a bit later than, than Sam's. Um, I think that I read The Hobbit, I was probably 12 or 13 when I, when I read The Hobbit the first time, and I started to read Fellowship of the Ring after that. And uh, my prepubescent brain was not into it. I 
got bored and just kind of went on to other things. Uh, as I started reading just more and more compulsively, I guess, as I got older, uh, I think that I sort of I, I revisited Fellowship of the Ring probably uh, my freshman year of college or so. And that was the first time that I really read through Lord of the Rings in a real serious way. It was probably about four or five years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I loved it, of course. Uh, I knew that I would. I'd also seen the movie, so I sort of knew the, the general story. But then I kind of decided, well, I think I should probably go a bit deeper here because I think that this universe is really interesting. Uh, and so I read The Silmarillion, and that became probably my favorite book. It's certainly in my top five favorite books. When I read that, I thought it was just amazing and incredible, and I had never read anything like it. Um, and then I went on from that to read, uh, like the unfinished tales and then the more recent, uh, Christopher Tolkien edited, uh, full, full book length versions of the stories of the children of Hurin and Baron and Luthien. Um, so I think that my interest in Tolkien is somewhat more recent than Sam's, but both of our discoveries of the, the real extended stuff, that isn't just Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, comes about around the same time-ish. Mine actually might be a little before his. It is. It is before mine. Yeah. Um, but either way, we both, I think, have absorbed so much information about it because we both uh, just love this universe so much. And I think that we can kind of go into now what we are sort of envisioning for this this podcast. So... How I see it, at least, is that Tolkien's body of work is, it's expansive, like any true mythology. And within it is a wealth of commentary on how we ought to live and organize our societies um, and relate to one another. Yeah, and I would also add that it's not just resembling a mythology because a lot of you know fictional universes as we would call them today do but also tolkien was explicitly trying to create a, a mythology the original genesis for all of the i guess you would say like middle earth work although some of it's not actually set in middle earth but all of the work within this universe uh is was him trying to create a creation myth for english culture yeah th I, that's exactly right and I think we'll get into some of this uh, later episodes, I'm sure, we'll do on ideas of uh, race and nationality, uh, ethnicity and things in Tolkien's work. But I think that the angle that we're going to have to take for all of that is that th all of his work, basically, and uh, Lord of the Rings in large part, but also really all of it, is that it is explicitly based in... English culture. He would always say in, in multiple of his, his letters and in interviews and stuff, he would say, yes, of, of course, the Shire is based on, uh, you know, the English countryside, because I love the English countryside. And that not just not just the English countryside, an extremely specific part of the English countryside. <laughs> that That's right. Yeah. Where, where was that again? Uh, the West Midlands. The That's right. The West Midlands. Um, and we're going to, I think in this episode, we're going to get more into Tolkien, who he was specifically, because I think that that actually gives a surprising amount of, of insight into exactly what he's doing with uh, this work. I did 
also uh, want to broadly say, for you, the listener, um, you do not, or at least you should not have to be a real uh, Tolkien freak like Sam and I to enjoy this podcast. The The idea here is that we want to have these discussions that are grounded or based in Tolkien's work, but it's not going to be limited to in-universe stuff. So we're going to also be talking about the impacts that his work has on on real people, especially uh, I know that we'll, we'll be focusing pretty deeply on the 60s counterculture, which loved Lord of the Rings. Um, or in the case of this episode, we're going to be talk- talking about uh, Tolkien himself, the man. Um, and so uh, you don't need to be a, a Tolkien nerd. And for the episodes where we are going deeper into the, the in-world stuff, the idea is that we're going to try to provide the tools that you might need uh, to follow along, even if you've never read The Silmarillion. I think that we kind of have a working assumption that you are at least somewhat familiar with the story of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, if only from the movies. Uh, but other than that, we're not assuming any knowledge of really anything outside of those main works that everyone is sort of familiar with at, at some level. I think we can kind of go into now... Would you rather talk about biographical stuff right now, or would you rather talk about, uh, like, the history of in-world I, I want to do biography, and I want to do a quick little forward, because we have to, on how he thought that going into his biography was bad and wouldn't give you any insights, and how I respect that, but it's also incorrect. So, <laughs> uh, this is uh, reading directly from uh, the Wikipedia article on J.R.R. Tolkien. John Ronald Raoul Tolkien was born on January 3rd, 1892 in... Sam, how do you say that? In... Let me pull this up really quickly. Okay. Bloom, Bloom Fontaine in the Orange Free State, the wonderful um, uh, <laughs> British Imperial era of South Africa where things are really good for a lot of people. So his his father was an English bank manager who I if I if I recall he uh, his father passed away when he was four. Everyone's sickly. This whole family they're all so it's very Victorian. They're all sickly all the time. You know, medicine sucks. I was going to talk about uh, this incident where he was bitten by a large baboon spider. Do you do you remember this? Oh yeah, that's yes and yes that's a good anecdote. So. He, this is this is a letter from June seventh, nineteen fifty five, that he wrote to W. H. Auden. For all of you uh, letters of J. R. R. Tolkien edited by Humphrey Carpenter readers, this is letter one hundred sixty three. We're going to be throughout the real heads. Know. Real heads know we're going to be throughout this podcast citing letters that he wrote by the number that they are in uh, the Humphrey Carpenter edited. Uh, compendium of Tolkien's letters. So this is letter 163, and this is to the famous poet W.H. Auden. So here he's describing the path of Kirith Ungol, which is from the end of the two towers. Sam and Frodo are, are passing through, uh, led by Gollum, and they are intercepted by Shelob, the giant scary spider. Uh, if you're uh, if you're familiar with the movies, this was actually in Return of the King. They uh, Peter Jackson changed around the, the chronology a little bit. But... Um, He says the following, I knew that the way was guarded by a spider, and if that has anything to do with my being stung by a tarantula when a small child, people are welcome to the notion, supposing the improbable that anyone is interested. 
I can only say that I remember nothing about it, should not know it if I had not been told, and I do not dislike spiders particularly, and have no urge to kill them. I usually rescue those whom I find in the bath. That, that, that was just, again, that I think is an anecdote that points toward uh, some of what Sam was getting at, that he was basically like, stop asking me shit about my personal life. The spider that bit me has nothing to do with this epic spider Shelob. And it's also funny that it's not just he he both thought that an author's personal life has no bearing to their art, like in any capacity. And he also thought it was like really weird that people were interested in like he had this weird love hate relationship with his fans where on the one hand, he developed this so late at life, right? Like, Lord of the Rings only gets big in, like, really the last 10, 15 years of his life. And he didn't have the same fan base from The Hobbit. And he was so honored that, like, people liked his stuff and were, like, asking him intricate lore questions that he would just, like, respond to all of their mail, which is why there's so much of it that, you like, anyone can read. But he also thought that it was sort of creepy and weird. Um, and it's, like, you can both tell that he has contempt for most of his fans and he also thought like a lot of them were dumb uh sort of explicitly but he also is like sort of loves the attention which is maybe not unusual but funny nonetheless i have not seen his take that like the author's life doesn't matter at all i don't know that he would it's in the carpenter biography but i forget where maybe i i'm probably exaggerating as i'm prone to do it might not be not at all but he's basically like it really doesn't matter that much <laughs> yeah and yeah that that seems that seems right i just i want i don't want to you know mischaracterize because i think that the idea that it doesn't matter at all i think is patently ridiculous i think even he would say like oh well the shire is you know the west midlands and that's from his life Yes, yeah, 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 but I also, I mean, and as this podcast, both this episode and every subsequent episode we'll get into, the dude had a variety of mutually exclusive and contradictory viewpoints yes. on most subjects, and yeah. he was also aware of this, uh, yes. which is why he's yes. so fun. Yes, it's, yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways he does have some of median voter syndrome. I was although, gonna, I was about to say literally he has median voter syndrome, so it's it's definitely <laughs> you said that. Although the the problem with that is that I I would honestly I have not seen any evidence anywhere that he did vote at all. I am willing to bet that he never voted, considering that he was fundamentally opposed to democracy, <laughs> and I and like did was morally opposed to engaging with the democratic process. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. So, so this is a hint. This is a hint of his weird politics. Guys. Yes, right. Okay, we're getting we're getting ahead of ourselves. I think. Um, yeah. So I wanted to just bring up the the spider anecdote, but but basically, his mother Mabel Tolkien, who he was very close to, uh, converted to Catholicism in 1900, uh, and four years later, when J.R.R. Tolkien was 12, his mother passed away. Carpenter says multiple times, like, Tolkien never admitted it, but the reason he was so fucking Catholic was because it, it reminded him of his mom. And it's it's not just that it's because it reminded him of its of his mom. He, and this sort of mirrors, like, I guess broadly Christian, but also a lot of specifically Catholic ideas. He thought that his mom's conviction in her Catholicism was why she died. And as his life goes on, and there's probably a certain degree of truth for this, in her conversion process, and she's obviously, like, a single mother, her husband is dead, she has, like, a really hard time paying for stuff. Tolkien, I mean, he didn't grow up poor, but he did not grow up, like, upper class. 
which I think might be a popular misconception about him. Yeah. But regardless, I think a lot of people, including myself before I knew better, like would assume that he grew up wealthy, which he did not. Um, but he grew up like in uh, definitionally the quintessential like British middle class. Um, but a lot of that was supported by extended family uh, before his mother's death, when it's you know supported a lot by his his uh, adopted or not adopted, but his guardian, the 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 Catholic priest. But getting ahead of myself, his mom converts to Catholicism, and a lot of her family is like, "This is terrible. We're not going to support you and your two sons anymore," because Tolkien had a brother, and it's probably not why she died. She probably was just so sick. With that, with the medicine and you know, the turn of the century, she would have been you know sort of screwed anyways. But Tolkien thought that she sort of knew as she was getting sicker and sicker that if she converted back, that her family would accept her again and pay for medical bills. Remember, this is before the NHS. Um, pay for him and his brother's education. But she didn't. She had so much con- conviction in her religious faith. And the more he grows up, the more he comes to associate Catholicism, not just with his mother, who he loved and missed and developed this sort of attachment to in her death, which is baked into this nostalgic memory of, of a childhood that was stolen from him by his, by both of his parents dying when he was a kid. But also the idea that like she had so much conviction in this, she was basically willing to die for it. And that's probably why he was such a hardcore Catholic. He would probably have been a hardcore Christian regardless, but, like, he hated the Anglican Church. In fact, I would, and Kenny, you can say whether or not you agree with this, I think he probably hated, like, the Anglican Church and, like, most Protestant denominations much more than he hated, um, like, non-Christians entirely. In uh, Carpenter, on on page 65 of the... um... Uh, I think we have the first hardcover editions of the the Humphrey Carpenter bio of Tolkien. Uh, he quotes Tolkien as calling the Church of England a pathetic and shadowy medley of half-remembered traditions and mutilated beliefs, uh, which I think I think is a lot more hardcore than how he would have described, say, like Islam or something, right? It almost certainly is. In fact, he was like openly praised Judaism. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the dwarves are are he said are are basically based on on Jews in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, and we'll get into this in a later episode. But like the the dwarves are like explicitly just Jews, pretty much. <laughs> right, right. Um, so before she dies, Mabel Tolkien assigns the guardianship of Ronald and his younger brother to her close friend, Father Francis Xavier Morgan. So Tolkien has this uh, this two punch of he thinks his mom died because she converted to Catholicism, which is honestly not that far from the truth if it's not just true. And then he was literally raised for the rest of his adolescence by a practicing Catholic priest. So Tolkien spends the rest of his life as a pretty hardcore Catholic. And what's really interesting, and we'll get into this certainly later, uh, is the extent to which Lord of the Rings and his work in general is not uh, apologia for Catholicism in the way that C.S. Lewis's work was. Yeah. Okay, so 
moving on a bit, we're going to run through this kind of quickly. Basically, Tolkien does fine in school. If I remember, he's not like an exceptional student, um, but he's definitely... I would say he wasn't like an exceptional student in his youth. I do believe that in like high school, you know, the latter years of high school, specifically what he ended up doing for his career you know, with English and writing and reading and also debate and oratory, he actually was an exceptional, pretty remarkable student. Oh, okay. Yes, that that is very true. I, I know there was that story that Carpenter tells that that reminds me of you, Sam, because apparently in high school, although, of course, this is like, you know, 1910 England, so they probably called it like second disease or something. They wouldn't have yeah. said high school, but <laughs> but um, but uh, there's a story of apparently Tolkien was somewhat of a debate lord, and he was. There was this this debate thing that they had to do where it's like this tradition where they would you know deliver a debate in or, or deliver an, an oratory, I think, in Latin. And there's a story in the Carpenter bio about how. That was not enough of a challenge for him. And so he did the whole thing in like first Gothic and then Anglo-Saxon, I believe. Yes. Yeah. When he was in high school, he gave a speech about how the Norman conquest was like a tragedy. And it's noted that he would almost tear tear up thinking about how much of a tragedy it was. And the Norman conquest happened a solid 900 years before he was doing anything. So... It's also worth noting that he hated France from, like, a young age. And it's weird, and part of it's explained, and part of it seems random. (laughs) I think that he hated France because of his obsession with English history, and that France is the, you know, the enemy of England from, like, time immemorial. Uh, Here, do you want to talk about him and, like, going where he went, you know, going to college and go through some of his war experience? Oh, yeah. Uh, Let's let it rip. So, Tolkien went to Oxford University... Exeter College, uh, you know, very prestigious. He initially applied uh, for this scholarship because he needed a scholarship because, again, he was of a social class that could go to Oxford at this point in time, but not he did not have the money to, like, actually pay for it. And most of his college classmates were a lot wealthier than he was. But he goes to Oxford. He's in the debate club. He keeps playing sports. He starts his own club uh, to talk about, um, to basically read, uh, you know, Viking sagas and and shit. And he decides to pursue a career in academia, but it gets uh, put on the back burner because uh, World War I happens. And like everyone, he gets drafted and it is terrible and most of his friends die. Uh, he actually, in a in a letter to his homies, his like high school best friends, they called themselves the TCBS. They were like all of his besties, and then they all, uh, you know, most of them die um, in the, in the war. Uh, he talked about how uh, there for all of the evil on their side, their side being the Allies, the British, uh, it was still a war of good versus evil. He also later said he was really distraught by how. Um, you know, sort of opinions of Germany lowered because of his appreciation for German culture. This becomes a bigger theme in World War II. One of the reasons he hates Hitler, besides the fact that he is, uh, you know, opposed to anti-Semitism and genocide, is because he loves German culture. And he's like, no, you're ruining its reputation for everyone. Yeah, that yeah, that becomes a big focus of basically all of his letters from the Second World War, where he's like, I think German, and he always calls it, like, northern culture, meaning Germany and also, you know, Scandinavia and stuff. He says, like, I think German culture 
or northern culture is so epic and this Hitler guy is so distorting it and making it about all this weird race stuff. And he's like, that's not what it's about. Yeah, for the ways in which Tolkien was conservative, and he was in a lot of ways, he was a lot less interested in, I guess, sort of like modern conceptions of race than a lot of other people, I guess I would say. Yeah, I, I think um, that's right. Not that, not that he didn't definitely have, you know, I guess, racialized opinions, but they were almost a more classical or medieval notion of race that was a lot less tied to stuff like skin color and a lot more tied to like each different ethnicity like english and french people being as different from each other as they would be from like you know any ethnic group in you know sub-saharan africa or east asia yeah i think that's right Coming out of World War One, that was such a defining and traumatic experience for him. I mean, he was in the trenches uh, at the Battle of the Somme, uh, which is Sam. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm I'm pretty sure that's like, if it's not the bloodiest battle in human history, it's like among them for sure. Oh, it's it it is up there. It is up there. Um, yeah, and, and and he was you know he was literally in the trenches. So uh, that is a you know sort of a, a level of trauma and what's you know now what we would call ptsd um that it, it it sort of has to come out in his work and you do get in lord of the rings there are several sections that i noticed on my on my most recent reread that are very clear when he's describing like battle it's very clear it almost takes you out of the narrative and he starts talking about like how particular soldiers or uh combatants are like feeling during the battle, this happens two or three times throughout the course of Lord of the Rings, and and you get the sense yeah. that that's coming directly from him. Um, there is also, I think, something relevant in that because coming out of World War One, like literally all of his close friends, or all but a, you know a couple, died in World War One. It was so it so consumed him as well as you know basically the rest of Europe that. Um, that also has such a big effect, not only on him, but on all of the other writers and artists and thinkers of his generation. Uh, but Tolkien goes in a bit of a different direction with it. I have here a, a passage from uh, Middle Earth and the Return of the Common Good, which is uh, a recent book by Joshua Wren. Uh, generally, it's, I think it's a very good book. Uh, we're going to be citing it uh, much more later uh, on later episodes. But he has this great quote where he says... We can see Tolkien's narrative as a profound assertion of the common good against the cynicism and absurd complexity of a modernity that exploded in the Great War. Instead of aesthetic triviality, Tolkien returned from the Psalm with a modern mythology. So rather than embracing the nihilism or the sort of cynicism that were characteristic of a lot of Tolkien's contemporaries... He comes out of it with, as Ren writes, a modern mythology. Uh, Sam, is it, do you want to touch on that at all? I'd say this. The first thing you can really say is a part of his huge story is the fall of Gondolin, which is written basically during the psalm, and it's really direct. It is about horrible, bad bloodshed um, where a lot of people die. I guess elves, but you get the idea. A lot of people die. Most people die. And it is just broadly terrible and no one really wins. I mean, the bad guys win, but even they ultimately lose. So it's just horrific. He's 
not just writing this to reflect his own situation. It's not just supposed to be allegory. Something we'll get into a lot as any discussion of him does is about allegory versus application. But what he's trying to do is sort of incorporate what he's experiencing into a broader narrative about deep spiritual truths and universal human truths. He believed in universal truth. And his work is not supposed to be an escape. He talks about this a lot. He even talks about this in the context of The Hobbit, which is written explicitly for children, is that every fairy story um, needs an element of darkness uh, because they need to be real on some level. Even if there's dragons and giant fire monsters and elves and wizards, it's all a reflection of human truth. And he believed that using fantasy, or as he would call it, fairy story, uh, allowed you to get at deep truth and universal truth in a lot of instances better than sort of realistic contemporary fiction did. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's all right. So I kind of want to move quickly through the rest of his own life because as he would so pointedly point out, it doesn't matter. So... Um, <laughs> I'm going to say he comes back, he makes it back from World War One, uh, and he continues in academia. He becomes, you know, a, a big deal professor at, uh, I believe, Merton College, I think. <laughs> that that would be enough to, to fill the life of most other people with fruitful writing. But he, starting with this mythology that he had been writing, it just kind of keeps expanding and expanding and other stories that he writes like the Hobbit, which was just a, a story for his kids that was not intended to be originally intended to be part of this expansive universe that he had been creating his whole life kind of gets incorporated into it. So he publishes the Hobbit in the late 1930s. And Sam, I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that that it was essentially an accident that a publisher even read it to begin with and was like, hey, this is pretty good. Yeah, so what happened is he wrote it for his kids. Uh, then he, his kids basically are are not really bragging, but talking to their other kids in the neighborhood about how great this story their dad wrote is. And then one of these kids uh, wants it and she sort of gets uh, you know a, a rough copy of it. And then it passes along from person to person, I forget the exact chain, it really doesn't matter, until it ends up in the hands of the um, Allen and Unwin Publishing Company, uh, run by Stanley Unwin, who has a long um, sort of frenemy, maybe, well, not from his viewpoint, but from Tolkien's viewpoint, a frenemy relationship with Tolkien, as Tolkien had with many people, including, you know, a lot of his closest friends. And, <laughs> like C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I was thinking of C.S. Lewis. Um Basically, to decide whether or not to publish it, uh, Stanley Unwin has his son, Rainer, who I believe is 13. Is that right, Kenny? I think he's even younger than that. I, I think of him as being like eight or nine, but, uh, you know, I, he's young. Read the book, and he's like, this is good. And then Tolkien's like, great. Like, tell me what you think needs to be modified about it. I think the craziest part of this whole story is that all of the work he has published during his lifetime from this point on... He flies by Rainer Unwin, including when he's just like in his 20s to give him critique on Lord of the Rings. And there is no professional reason for this. Like, he's no, not, no, 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 like, Sam, that's, that's not quite right. Actually, Rainer Unwin 
uh, as he gets older, he eventually takes over Alan and Unwin. So, so, so there is a professional reason, but it's predicated on the, you know, relationship that Tolkien and, and Rainer had had since Rainer was, since Rainer was a little kid. You can tell from his letters that even when Rainer is like nine slash 10, he's like, oh, this, this guy has respectable opinions, which I think is really yeah. cool. Yeah. Rainer is the, is the perfect audience for what he's writing because the Hobbit is a children's story. Rainer Unwin is not one of his kids. So they're not biased to having already been hearing this story for a long time. He can read it with fresh eyes and give Tolkien feedback. And then by the time Tolkien is working on Lord of the Rings, Rainer Unwin grows up, you know, concurrently with that. And he can give Tolkien feedback because Lord of the Rings is explicitly a more grown up story than The Hobbit. It is much, Tolkien would always say it's much darker. It's probably not suitable for little children like The Hobbit was intended to be. And really without Rainer Unwin sort of believing in Tolkien's work, Lord of the Rings might never have been published because he probably just would not have finished it. Rainer is constantly writing him letters saying, like, can you get me the next chapter? Can you get me this next draft? And that's, I mean, he obviously really wanted to get it published, but without someone who was enthusiastically pushing him to finish it from the uh, the from the end of the, the publishing company, you know, I, I mean, this is not, this is just purely my speculation, but it seems like it may have also gone the road of the, the Silmarillion of having to be published posthumously. Yes. So Lord of the Rings, which is one book published in three volumes, it comes out in 1954 and 55, I believe, uh, in The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and Return of the King. Publishing it in three volumes was purely uh, a necessity of printing stuff being very expensive and of the cost of marketing and selling a book that is uh, 1,100 pages or so. Tolkien basically reluctantly agreed to publish it in three volumes, despite the fact that he was particularly irked that volume two, The Two Towers, uh, the two books within it, because there's six books, right? Yes. Each, each volume has two books in it, all making up one great book or work. Uh, the two books in The Two Towers really have nothing to do with each other. Uh, book three is The Treason of Isengard, he called it, which is the story of the downfall of Saruman, whereas book four is the story of uh, Frodo and Sam being led by Gollum, to uh, Mordor, and it concludes, of course, with the story we were talking about earlier with with Shelob, the the giant spider. So he was not happy with having to publish them in three volumes, but he said, you know, better to do it like this than have them never see the light of day. After he publishes Lord of the Rings, it takes a few years, but they really do become pretty popular, especially among certain uh, elements of the counterculture in America. And we will spend a lot of time talking about that in future episodes because really without the sort of uh, the love of Lord of the Rings by like hippies, we probably wouldn't get, you know, the Peter Jackson movies. And Sam and I might not even know about Tolkien if it wasn't popularized so much by uh, those, you know, those uh, dirty American hippies of the 60s. Yeah, those those disheveled, gross, reefer-smoking weirdos. Degenerates. If only they had found God. Damn. 
Yeah, and you know, it's a good thing that that all the people that used to be hippies are now, like, Trump's base. Yeah, are now, I was literally about to say, like, well, they did ultimately find a version of God in there in, in, um, uh, JFK Jr. (laughs) Um, but, but, but anyway, all that's to say, after Lord of the Rings, you know, it sees moderate success upon publishing, and Tolkien basically then is saying, okay, well, Lord of the Rings is set in the same universe as the Silmarillion, which is my my truly great work that I have been writing since, you know, I was in my 20s or my teens. And I want to publish that. And he sends it over to, to Alan and Unwin, and they're like, we really can't publish this. Like, I don't know. They're, they basically tell him, like, we can't do this because there's no audience for this. It's a great work of, like of a mythology, basically. Most of it is written as a history. And I think that Alan and Unwin were sort of making that consideration that's like, this is not going to be worth us publishing. Tolkien dies in, I believe, 1973. And he is 81, so he lives, you know, a good long life. And uh, his son, Christopher, who had been the primary audience of all of Tolkien's stories for literally Christopher's entire life sort of takes up the mantle of upholding his father's legacy and publishing all of the unwritten works. Because really the only things that were published that were in-universe of, you know, the Lord of the Rings universe in in, in Arda or Ea uh, were The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And yeah. Christopher Tolkien takes up the mantle and, you know, only four years after his father passes away, Christopher publishes The Silmarillion. If you take nothing else from this first episode of the Entmoot podcast, uh, we would like you to have a decent understanding, uh, if you don't already, of how all of these books, so many of which are published posthumously, fit together to make this, you know, this this image of this mythology. So what we're really talking about here is Tolkien has uh, laid out in his mythology, a first a creation myth uh, of the universe, which is in the Silmarillion. It's the first part of the Silmarillion, and it's called the Ainulindale, and we'll get into that uh, soon. Uh, he then has a story of what is the called the First Age, which is all of the history of sort of it's the it's the earliest history of Middle Earth essentially, and that is all detailed in the Quenta Silmarillion, which is the the main part of the Silmarillion, the book that you can purchase. Then you go into the Second Age. Uh, the Akalabeth is the story mainly of the Second Age, specifically about the Isle of Numenor, which is sort of one of the main stories of, of the Second Age. Uh, and, you know, we'll get into that, of course, as well. Then uh, the Third Age is very briefly talked about in the Silmarillion, but the stories of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings are set toward the end of the Third Age. And then the end of Lord of the Rings uh, and the, the, you know, the, the fall of Sauron uh, and all of the elves passing into uh, the Undying Lands is um, uh, that is the beginning of the fourth age of which we don't know that much. And really the the two big sort of ages that that uh, most of his work was concerned with were the first age, which is the Quintessimilarillion and almost all of the stuff that he had been writing since, you know, he was a kid in World War One, And then the third age, which is really, it's not actually, but in my mind, the third age is sort of a, 
a synonym with like Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. It's not really. Lots of stuff happens in the Third Age before that, but it's kind of all leading up to the events of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Yes. So I think Sam and I are going to give a sort of, you know, brief-ish summary of the what the first, second, and to a lesser extent, third ages kind of look like. Because again, as I said earlier, we're sort of assuming um, that you, the listener, might not have a, you know, a, a comprehensive knowledge of the stories that are that are contained there. If you do, you know, feel free to not listen to this part or do. It might be still enjoyable. But um, Tolkien's universe is uh, monotheistic. Religion actually does not play a big part of most of the stories, especially the later ones. Uh, but it is monotheistic and uh, the sort of god He's called the One, or Eru Iluvatar. Uh, we'll generally just call him Iluvatar. So Iluvatar basically creates all of these uh, other homies that are sort of akin to angels, I guess, in the in the Christian tradition. Uh, and they are called the Valar. And then each of the Valar have sort of uh, homies that serve them when they're called the Maiar. And then together, the Valar and the Maiar make up the Ainur, A-I-N-U-R, which is where that word Ainulindale is is derived. In the Ainulindale, Iluvatar basically plays the role of a musical conductor, and he's conducting the Ainur in this glorious symphony of sorts, where their singing uh, is bringing into existence the universe. Uh, but within the the Ainulindale, you get the Tolkien version of the fall of Lucifer, where uh, one of the Ainur, who is the strongest or sort of tied for strongest with Manwe, another one of the Ainur, uh, his name is Melkor. And Melkor essentially is says... Iluvatar doesn't know what he's doing. He's not conducting this right. I know how to conduct it better. And I need people to like follow me because I want to create stuff. And I'm going to create the universe and I'm going to do it better than Iluvatar could. And of course, Iluvatar doesn't like that. And uh, he banishes Melkor. Uh, the next part of the Silmarillion is the Valaquenta, which is basically just talking about the Valar. Uh, there's 14 of them, I believe. Uh, seven boys and seven girls, and uh, their chief is Manwe. As I already mentioned, he is sort of the strongest. But then you also have Aule, who is the the craftsman god. Uh, and I, I'm using god sort of loosely because, as I said, they're not god, but they are like kind of gods in like the sort of popular you know, conception of what a god is and does. Yeah, or, or like sort of you know, it's sort of a pantheon, even though it's not technically. It is. He, um, he was very inspired by Greek and Roman. Myth. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So Aule is the is the is the craftsman god, uh, and then there's there's again many others. The only one other one I wanted to mention, Sam, I can't remember his name. The 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 one of the sea. What's his name? Oh oh Ulmo. Ulmo. That's right. Yeah. And so, really, I I would say arguably that the most important Valar that kind of keep playing important roles in the Quenta Silmarillion are Ulmo. Aule, Yavanna, Yavanna as well, and Manwe. Yeah, I I would say that Mandos, Yavanna, um, Niena, Aule, 
Olmo and Tulkas are the main ones to remember. Yeah, but we'll get it either way. We'll get into that. Sam, I want you to uh, tell us the story broadly of the first age of Middle-earth. So basically, there's this big orchestra. The universe is created. Uh, It's called Aya. Within Aya is a planet called Arda, which is also Earth, because all of this is Earth in the past. Fun fact. Um, And... Morgoth, or uh, is I would also down sorry, there. Sam. I would also mention Morgoth is uh, the Elven name for Melkor. Oh yeah, sorry. I keep I keep doing that. Um, him and the Valar fight a lot. He destroys their first big creation, which are the lamps, which illuminate the planet. Uh, the Valar are like, oh my god, this sucks so bad. We're gonna make this continent out west and chill over there. And when they're there. Um, Yavanna creates the two trees of Valinor, which is their, their continent they're living on, which are these majestic tree, trees, and we'll get into a lot more detail on them on a later episode, which basically create the light in the world, but it's not enough to stretch over to the eastern continent, which is not great because during the orchestra which created the existence of the universe outside of the timeless and shapeless void, uh, Luvatar creates two species, which are his children, and they are man and elves. And elves are the firstborn. They awaken first, you know, tens of thousands of years, basically, before men do, because all this old stuff is over a huge time span. And because the Valar are out west, chilling under the light of the trees, having a dope time, you know, it's sick out there. Oh, and I, I would, I would like to, I would just like to emphasize too that the the Valar, as I as I mentioned, there are only fourteen of them, and they are very much like a pantheon of gods, but they are in physical form on Arda. Valinor is like a physical continent. Yeah, yeah, it's a literal on place Arda, on the planet. Very good point. Also, it's there's also the Maiar are also out there. Um, that's right. Chilling with them. Yes, that that's right. And 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 again, the Maiar are the sort of servants of the Valar, and they are also, uh, you know, heavenly beings, essentially. Yes. And Morgoth has taken control of most of the world, and they don't want to fight him because it's such a hassle, even though they know they could win. They're out west, uh, not, you know, doing much, just chilling under the light. The light doesn't get to the other continents. Then the elves awaken in darkness and starlight. And when the elves wake up, they sort of wander around. Some of them are lost. Some of the ones who are lost, it is implied, are turned into orcs by Morgoth as he lures them away, which is the genesis for orcs existing. Some of the Valar are still invested in finding these dudes and aren't too obsessed with having a good time out in Valinor. One of these is Orome, who is the sort of god, you could say, of hunting. He finds them, and then he goes back to Valinor, and he's like, we gotta help these guys. The, the Valar sort of deliberate, and uh, ultimately they decide to bring the elves over to Valinor. They come up with this whole scheme to do it. It's really cool. It involves moving islands. The one basic split I'll say is they're the elves of those who were going to go over. Some of them ultimately don't, um, and they stay in Middle-earth, and that's relevant later. Then there's all the elves who go over to Valinor. They're there. They're there for a long time. Oh, also, I forgot to mention that uh, as a part of bringing the elves over to Valinor, the uh, Valar go over to Middle-earth and destroy uh, 
Melkor, which is fairly easy because there's a lot of them and they're super powerful. Even though he's more powerful than any one of them together, they just destroy him. They destroy uh, one of his two fortresses. Um, but the other one they don't totally destroy and all the evil stuff he makes survives and uh, reproduces, it is implied, which is one of the reasons there's evil in the world to this day. But basically, they bring him back over to Valinor in chains. This period of time is known as the captivity of of, uh, Melkor. He is in chains for a very long time. During this time, the various elves who stayed over in uh, Middle-earth and, uh, you know, assorted continents in the east uh, create some domains and kingdoms. And then the elves who are over in Valinor uh, just have a good time. Except one of them uh, does not have a very good time because he's a bit he's, he he gets a bit too cocky, a bit too uh, big for his own britches. And this guy is named Feanor. He uh, captures the light of the trees, which is magical, in these gems called the Silmaril. Uh, and then uh, Morgoth gets out of prison um, because the Valar are you know just and have. I don't do, uh, you know, life in prison, uh, mass incarceration stuff based. Uh, although maybe not because of how it goes. M- Melkor teams up with this giant evil spider and they destroy the trees. Uh, not good. There's no light in, uh, there's basically no light in the world for a period of time. Everyone's crying. Everyone's bummed. And then they realize, hey, that Feanor dude, who's pretty notable, he is basically the son of the king of his tribe of elves and also like invents writing systems and is the greatest craftsman of all time uh, has a part of the light of the trees in his gems and he could create them back and then the Valar request him he's been getting really weird and sort of brooding and dark and I, I think me and Kenny would say conspiratorial yeah and sort of deeply paranoid and creates these conspiracy theories that the Valar are after the elves and that they are thralls, that they are slaves. None of this is true. And that they want to... Yeah, I would describe... I, I would and have described Feanor as the MAGA uncle of the Legendarium. I would go further and describe him as a, an explicitly QAnon uncle of the Legendarium. And uh, they request, okay, you have these gems. Could we use them to, like restore the trees because their roots were still a bit intact even though they were dying and then Feanor is like uh not only no but also i'm taking this as confirmation that you wanted to take them from me the whole time and that you guys are all evil and that you are just as evil as melkor because you are of the same class of beings or species as him and then he's like we my tribe of elves guys we gotta go over to middle earth where melkor escaped to with the silmaril and everything he plundered, and defeat him. And he's like, but the Valar won't let us. And then the Valar are like, actually, we will let you, but if you leave, you can't come back. And then he's like, uh, I do not care. On their way out, they're like, we need boats. But none of them know how to sail. There's a different tribe of elves which do know how to sail. So he goes to them and he says, uh, give us uh, all of your boats which you spent literally thousands of years crafting. And they say, no, uh, We'll just let the Valor handle this. So then he, he murders them. Uh, it's it, He slaughters them en masse. Uh, big war crime vibes. And uh, this is not allowed um, by the Valar. It's known as the first kinslaying, or just, you know, more commonly, the kinslaying. 
the entire Noldor, that's his tribe, as a whole take part in this, but it is worth noting that his two brothers are in the back of the host, and they didn't really realize what was going on. And then, basically, uh, Feanor and his uh, sons um, swear an oath to retake the Silmaril from... Uh, the Silmarils from Melkor and do anything they can to, to take them and kill anyone in their path who stops them. And they hold to that to the very end. They go over in boats. Feanor's two brothers are sort of horrified by what happened. They're already banned from staying in Valinor because they participated at all. So they still go over, but instead they cross uh, the giant ice sheets in the northwest, the Helcoraxe. Then they're over there. A lot of stuff happens. Cities are created. Cities are destroyed. So on and so forth. There's a lot of stories. We'll get into them in future episodes. It all ends. You know, Feanor dies. Basically, all of his sons die. Um, then there's this one elf who goes back over to Valinor. And he's like, uh, shit is terrible. Only a few of us are even alive. Uh, Melkor has destroyed everything with his dragons and his balrogs. And the Valar are like, you know what? This is a bad situation. We're going to destroy him and in the process destroy this entire continent. And that is the first age. Yes. So a, a very brief, very brief summary of the first age. There are some things that we didn't even really touch on. And because they're not super important for the first age, uh, except for, you know, in a few particular cases. But uh, Sam, you did mention that uh, the elves are called the firstborn. We did only really briefly mention that uh, after elves come humans, men, uh, and 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 men are in many ways. There, Tolkien has a lot of writing actually about how they are biologically very similar to elves, which is how they can, in a few cases, procreate. Um, but men uh, are, you know, they are humans, so they have uh, a finite lifespan and then also elves have sort of more quote-unquote magical power all this really means is that when an elf conceptualizes something like a song or a state of being uh they can then pass the idea into physical reality really fast by like you know creating light out of magic or just by being really good at singing there are some humans throughout the course of Legendarium who are a bit different, a bit more magical, you could say. Some of this comes from interbreeding with elves, and in one case, sort of interbreeding with uh, angelic beings. So like we mentioned, uh, elves and men are sort of, the, those are the two children of Iluvatar, those two races. Elves are amortal, they don't die of natural causes, but they can be killed. Uh, men are humans, so they all have finite lifespans. And then in addition to men and elves, you also get the race of dwarves. Sam, do you want to talk briefly just about the uh, the origin of dwarves? Yeah, and this is maybe my favorite story that Tolkien wrote, even though it's really short. But Aule, um, we mentioned earlier, is sort of the craftsman of the gods, you could say. And in the tens of thousands of years between when the, um, you know, angelic beings, the Valar, enter the world, and when the elves awaken, Ally gets sort of lonely. He doesn't have really, you know, he has friends, he has a wife, but he doesn't really have any, who's a, you know, other god, but he doesn't really have anyone who can appreciate his work the way he does. So then he violates the orders of Iluvatar, who says he's the only one who's allowed to really create species, 
after the original music. And he secretly creates a race of beings who are similar to him, who are very stubborn and passionate about uh, craftsmanship and mining. And then Iluvatar finds out about this and he's like, bro, like you cannot do this. Like this is what Melkor does. And then Aule is like, you're right. And then there's this scene where he's about to kill the first dwarf and the first dwarf is cowering in fear. And then uh, in a very beautiful, you know, passage, Eru spares the dwarf and says, you know what? Even though you weren't supposed to do this, you clearly had good intentions. You weren't trying to create a species of evil or people who were subservient to you. You were just sort of lonely. Uh, so I'll let these guys exist. But one, because I had no hand in their making and I am God, they'll be sort of weird and funky. <laughs> and then two, they're, uh, they can't wake up till after elves do. Um, so that's how you get dwarves. I also want to quickly say that there are a few other sentient beings um, of the same class of dwarves, and those are uh, the Ents and the uh, Eagles. The Eagles are created during the Ainulinlay, I believe. They're a part of the music that creates the world, um, and they were, during that music, suggested by Manway. They have a similar relationship with Manway that the dwarves do with Aule. The Eagles are just Eagles, you know, they are the birds that we know as eagles. The difference being that they are way bigger and that they are sentient and that they can understand speech and communicate telepathically. Um, they serve as Manway's agents going around the world trying to do good and support, you know, the goodness in the world wherever it is. Uh, and then the Ents, uh, Kenny can talk about. Yeah, so, so the Ents, which are... Uh, my favorite race of uh, of characters in the Legendarium are essentially uh, tree people. They are big. Tre- you see them in uh, in the Two Towers specifically in the, in both the book and the movie, uh, mainly through the character Treebeard, who is an Ent. Uh, the Ents dwell in Fangorn Forest on uh, in Middle Earth, and they essentially are protectors of. Of the trees, so they themselves look like trees. Uh, if they don't, if you they don't move, you can't tell that they're not a tree. Um, and they move very slowly. They have a, a language called Old Entish that, um, when they it takes them hours and hours and hours to say to like introduce themselves. For example, a fun little wrinkle here is that after y- Yavanna, who by some metrics is the most powerful of the Valar and is also Ali's wife, little funny you know, light uh, relationship conflict here, uh, finds out about the dwarves and how uh, Ulubatar has sanctioned their existence. She's like, oh my God, this sucks because they're going to just chop down all the trees um, and not care about them because all they care about are their are their beautiful gemstones and, and creating cool uh, furniture and stuff. And she's like, we need a species that will care about the trees, that will represent the trees, that will be the trees. And then she works with Iluvatar, and they create Ents, who will, um, you know, care for the trees and protect the trees in response to the creation of the dwarves. I think this is all funny just because it it sort of boils down to a, a, a spousal conflict. Yeah, and, and, and also, I don't know if you remember this, but in the Two Towers, when Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn 
enter Fangorn Forest. And Legolas says this, you know, something something to the effect of like, uh, this seems like a this is a um, a dangerous place. You know, the, the the trees are angry, and Gimli literally says, "Well, why are they angry with me? I haven't done anything." And that is, first of all, there are some political connotations there that I want to talk about in later episodes. But there's also the fact that they have the most right. The Ents would have the most right to be mad at Gimli because Gimli is a yes. dwarf, and like their entire you know, raison d'etre is to not like dwarves. You pronounced that so well. I could not, I could not pull that off. That was honestly, it was honestly luck because I don't speak French. And sometimes when I try to say French stuff, it, it doesn't go well. Tolkien Um, would not vibe with a French phrase being on a podcast about it. No, no, no. So let me say, let me rephrase, uh, that is the ants reason of being. Yes. So, okay. Now I'm going to do the second age and I'm going to do this. Fairly quickly, the Second Age is also easier to summarize than than the First Age, at least the, the big important events. So the Valar basically say to some of these, you know, the, the most prominent clans of, of men, uh, listen, you guys have really, you guys have really, uh, you know, taken a lot of shit from, from this, this Melkor Morgoth guy. We want to give you, speaking of Judaism, we want to give you a, you know, a, a sanctuary land where you'll be safe as sort of retribution for these, you know, historical damages, right? And just and like how it happened with that, it goes poorly. <laughs> Except the difference is there was no one living there before them. Yeah. So they raised this isle out of the sea, I believe. Uh, I don't think it's there yet. Yes. And it's called... It's based on Atlantis. Yes, it is Tolkien's Atlantis story. And the isle is called Numenor. Uh, and this, you know... There's a, a kingdom is founded there by the uh, these prominent clans of of, of men of humans. Um, elves at this time live on their own island, mostly called Tol Erisia. Some live in Middle Earth, but some live west on Tol Erisia, which is in between, essentially Numenor and and Valinor. Things are going things are going groovy. People are happy, uh, and basically the Valar impose only one restriction they basically say you guys can sail all around and go on adventures and hang out with elves especially the ones that live in middle earth but just don't sail west because this is the undying lands you guys are humans and you die you die you don't come here during the second age the men of numenor the numenorians or numenorins i guess uh are over in Middle Earth and they're helping out some of the elves that live over there to defeat uh, this this guy Sauron. And we haven't mentioned Sauron yet, but if you're a Lord of the Rings reader or watcher, you're probably a little familiar with this guy. So Sauron is one of the uh, Maiar, and the Numenorans help the elves defeat him because he's doing all sorts of evil, weird stuff in, in Middle Earth. And they take him back to Numenor in chains, just like uh, the Valar took Melkor in chains back to um, Valinor. And Sauron, basically, you know, he's he's trapped, he's jailed within the, uh, you know, the, the Hall of Numenor. And he is basically talking to the kings of Numenor and planting these ideas in their heads that are like, well, why can't you sail west? Why, uh, you know, what are the Valar, what, what are they hiding from you? 
And he preys on the Numenorans' fear of death, especially of there's one king who his name escapes me. It doesn't, I don't think it matters that much, who is, you know, getting older and he's probably going to die soon. And Sauron's like, but you don't have to die. You can just sail west, go to the Undying Lands. It's in the name. You won't die if you're on the Undying Lands. And this king is like, damn, you're right. And so most of Numenor, they sail to Valinor. And the second that this king sets foot on the Isle of Valinor, uh, Manwe, they basically get permission from Iluvatar to be like, okay, you got to just kill all of them. And <laughs> so basically, <laughs> Iluvatar is like, all right, yeah, yeah, we can do that. And so he, you know, the seas swallow up not only this fleet of, you know, these... Uh, these men who, who sort of are, uh, you know, they're way out of line, uh, trying to usurp, you know, basically trying to do this unnatural thing of live forever. And also side note, they wouldn't have been able to live forever if they got to the undying lands. Uh, Tolkien specifically like says that in a letter that it's like, nah, it's their nature. They have to die. So like Sauron's just straight up lying to them and he knows it. He's not just like corrupting them with something that is true. He's just lying. Um, but, uh, all that's to say not only do, 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 does this fleet of ships sink, but Numenor all, itself also sinks into the sea. The island itself. Well, it's worth, it's also just quickly worth noting here that this is like basically the only time after the Ainulindale that Iluvatar himself takes action. Everything That's right. from the first age was just the Valar, but Iluvatar is so pissed that they made them this island, uh, shit was good, they gave them longer lifespans, and they still disobeyed them, that he sinks this great island and also as a part of the atlantis thing it's also uh canon in the legendarium that the technology that men had um in numenor was much more advanced than what you see um them having in lord of the rings in the third age that's right and and a huge maybe i would say maybe the biggest part of tolkien's worldview and where his work comes from is essentially the idea that's like machinery bad yes so, essentially, this, this band of rebels, they are the only Numenorians that escape, and they make their way over to Middle-earth, and it's uh, Elendil and his sons, uh, Isildur and uh, Elarion, is that right? Yeah, I, I think so. It's something, something like that. And, um, basically, Isildur becomes the, uh, like, the king of the kingdom of Arnor, and Elarion, who I think is his name, uh, be- it founds essentially the, the kingdom of, of Gondor. These are the two great kingdoms of Middle-earth that are founded by these, these rebels of Numenor, the only Numenorians who were not, you know, sunk into the sea, basically. And Sauron escapes as well. And he goes to Mordor, which is his sort of his domain in, in Middle-earth, in the, uh, the, the, the east of Middle-earth, southeast. He grows in power. This is still the Second Age. The sinking of Numenor does not, does not constitute the end of the Second Age. It's almost the end, but it's not. Uh, there is... Uh, Sauron continues growing in power. And throughout the Second Age, actually, he's, he's creating these rings, right? And you may... You may be thinking, hmm, I know another thing that, about, that Tolkien wrote about rings, and you're right. Sauron is the Lord of the Rings, because he created these rings, and uh, really, he had other people do it for him. But anyway, uh, he gives them to, like, elves and dwarves and men, 
and he creates his own uh, ring, which is called the One Ring. You may know it from Lord of the Rings. That uh, that controls the other rings. When he is wearing this ring, uh, it binds the will of the of the people, or I guess not people, but people, dwarves, and elves, or whoever wearing the other rings. It doesn't really work with the elves, but neither here nor there. Sauron's plan is to channel his sort of evil energy into this ring to bind the wills of others. There is an alliance of elves and men, it's called the Last Alliance of Elves and Men, that bands together to essentially invade Mordor and 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 take out Sauron and his hosts of, of armies. And so the, you know, the men under Alendil and his sons, like I mentioned, Isildur and Anarion, and uh, the elves under Gilgalad, who is not that far off in terms of his genealogy from, like, Feanor and all the other elves from thousands and thousands and thousands of years before this, uh, because they are immortal, uh, they storm into Mordor and... Looks like Sauron's going to take them all out and he's going to control the world. But then Isildur, after uh, his father, Elendil, uh, is killed by Sauron, Isildur picks up uh, Elendil's shattered sword and he cuts the ring off, or he cuts Sauron's uh, fingers off, or at least the finger that has the ring on it. So, because Sauron's life force or his energy or whatever was channeled into this ring, Sauron sort of like evaporates he 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 uh, he disappears sort of and of course because he's a Maiar he doesn't die and that was only sort of his you know corporeal form so he doesn't die but he sort of goes away for a while and now you have this ring uh you also might remember this what I'm describing right now is the opening scene of the Fellowship of the Ring the movie and uh, so we're, I'm not really going to go that deep into it, but essentially Isildur keeps the ring because he's tempted by it. It's extremely tempting. Uh, he dies. Then, you know, a few hundred years later, I guess a few thousand years later, really, uh, this this hobbit who we haven't even mentioned hobbits yet, which gives you a sense of how insignificant hobbits are in the in the, the grand scheme of things within. They're just little guys. They don't do anything. Tolkien writes frequently. We don't really know where hobbits came from. They're probably just like like corrupt formed men. Deformed, that's the word I was looking for, like deformed men who are, you know, sort of small in stature and in ambition, basically. Um, but so a hobbit finds it. His name is Smeagol. Uh, Smeagol's corrupted by the ring. And over hundreds of years, you know, he becomes deformed and... Uh, well, he really uh, is is an exceptionally weird guy, even by the standards of hobbits. He's already weird. And like, by all accounts, probably kind of like simple-minded. Uh, which is why the ring takes such an immediate, like, and powerful effect on him, because he's sort of a, a, a vessel for it to get back to Sauron. Because uh, the ring has somewhat of a will of its own. Uh, but Gollum or Smeagol, who becomes Gollum because of the the sound that he makes when he coughs, um, is uh, corrupted by the ring. Until then, we get to finally the events of the Hobbit. Uh, which I'm honestly going to go very quickly. Uh, this this hobbit, other hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, he gets the ring from Smeagol, from Gollum, and, uh, you know, slays a dragon using the ring partially, takes it back to the Shire, which is where he's from, and then uh, the events of Lord of the Rings, which we can honestly sum up in uh, a few words, which is uh, Bilbo's nephew, Frodo. Uh, he takes the ring over to uh, to Mordor to destroy it. <laughs> because uh because Sauron is 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 back and 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 worse than ever 
And he successfully destroys the ring and saves Middle-earth, and then all the elves go back out west, and then it's the fourth age, the age of men. Summarized, you know, very, very briefly, although at times it probably felt like, uh, you know, we were a bit too long-winded. Um, that is sort of the the general shape of of Tolkien's uh, writing. And then, basically, when you're talking about the works that were published posthumously, because, of course, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, as we just said, are both set at the end of the Third Age. And The Silmarillion covers... Basically, it covers all of the First Age, all the time before the First Age, and in not that much detail, the Second Age, uh, and then also the the early parts of the Third Age. Um, but there's also, if you ever like look at you know Tolkien's bibliography, you're also going to see the Children of Hurin, Baron and Luthien, the Fall of Gondolin, which are all which were all published in like the last you know 15 years by Christopher Tolkien, who only died like two years ago. I think he was like a hundred years old. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Yes, yes, yes. And those stories are all in the Silmarillion, but it's just sort of expanded versions of them with revisions. Yes, that's what I was going to get at, is that really all of the like the stories that you're going to read and the shape and contour of like Tolkien's world, really there's there's nothing that is like major, major that is crucial to understanding the universe after the Silmarillion. It really is like Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and the Silmarillion, and then... The like the unfinished tales, for example, is of course stuff that he didn't finish writing, but that Christopher sort of polished up, and all that's really good and interesting, like lore stuff. But it's not like, oh, here's the story of the Fifth Age. Like, no, that's the the shape of the story is goes basically from the Silmarillion, Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, basically. Oh my God, I'm sorry. You, I was inspired by you saying that Tol- that Christopher Tolkien was like 100 when he died. Just look at his Wikipedia. So he was 95, which is still pretty epic. Um, guess where he died? Guess where he was living at the time of his death? Uh, wh- uh, wait, hold on. Did he die? It was like January 2020, I believe, right? Uh, it, it was, yes. But where was he living? Oh, no, no, no. I know. I know. I was, I was just flexing that there was a fact I knew because I don't know where he died. Is it? Okay. Uh, I didn't know did, when did he died, he- so you knew that, but. I knew because that was when I was reading the Silmarillion. He died oh. while I was reading the Silmarillion, um, which crazy. was weird. Yeah, that was yeah, weird because that's like, nutty, that's it, nutty. you know, I mean, just being like, there's a certain age that I feel like when you're 95 and like, I don't know that much about you. And the first I really like go to your Wikipedia or whatever, and it says you're 95. I'm like, oh, okay, you're just going to live forever. <laughs> I did. He die in France. Yes, he was living in France. <laughs> he was living just, at a town in the south of France between Nice and Marseille called, I can't pronounce it, but yeah, between Nice and Marseille. Anyway, I think that this is probably a, a, a good point to, to cut off this meandering uh, discussion here. Um, so I don't know how long this podcast episode is going to be, but for uh, your... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for for your context listener uh sam and i have been recording now for two hours and 50 minutes approximately and we had actually been uh talking to you know do planning and stuff for about an hour before that so uh this has gotten completely out of hand uh and uh i'm gonna be paring this down later very much in uh in post-production but anyway uh, we salute you and we thank you for making it this far uh, into this podcast. Um, we, yes, yes, we appreciate uh, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to listen to us ramble about uh, 
an author's work who we we care about very much and we're really excited to to keep uh, diving deep into in the future. So I wanted to say thanks for listening. Sam, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Tellerico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.